The problem I have with understanding East Asian civilizations is that I think you're reaching, even on a purely linguistic level, limits of human understanding, limits of human capacity to communicate with each other effectively. Because not only are you dealing with histories that barely touch each other, except in the past 150 years, you're dealing with long civilizational histories of things like concepts and language and ways of communicating, like in the case of China, Japan, and Korea, uh, through, you know, basically pictures, thousands of pictures that are set next to each other uh, versus a way of communicating that in the West is determined by alphabets and at one time a common language, at least everywhere West of like Bulgaria. So strangely um, tied to Christianity, just incidentally, (laughs) right. Incidentally. And so what you're dealing with is, you know, so let me give you an example of this because over the next couple of episodes, I want to talk about China and Japan, and this is more of a Japan issue, but you'll get people saying something like, oh, you know, the Japanese self-report as completely non-religious. Well, the whole problem there is on some level, a linguistic issue Because the two, what the West would call religions, Shinto and Buddhism in Japan, do not describe themselves as religions. Japanese actually is the the source of the term new religion in the sense of new religious movement, a term that tons of Western languages use now. And anything that is not Shinto or Buddhism gets filed under religion. So of course, Japanese people who go to Shinto temples on New Year's Day or within the first couple of days of the new year, who have themselves buried specifically by Buddhist priests, which is unique to Japanese Buddhism, of course they don't say they're religious because that would be like if the only word you had was Muslim for doing religious activities and you said, hey, I noticed that America is like 98% not Muslim. They must not care about anything that you can't see with your own two eyes. Hmm. Well, that's that's a linguistic problem. That's a, that's a civilizational category problem. And when you're dealing with things like China or Japan, to a lesser extent, Korea, because of how Christian hmm. Korea has become uh, and how influential Christians are in Korean politics, but China and Japan, especially, you're dealing with very, very old civilizations that have been developing far apart from all the concepts that have become incredibly important to anyone. This is not even genetic. Anyone raised inside, whatever your genetics, raised inside a Western society. Meaning a modern assumption, secure island from whatever is history. Something spun out of the Western Eurasian Peninsula within the past 500 years that therefore is decisively influenced by alphabets and the history of Christianity. And well, I, I mean, pushing to I mean, yeah. pushing back to what we were saying before we started recording, decisively materialistic on a certain level. You know, those yeah, those civilizations are among the world's most materialistic. I would say on a philosophical yes. level. Yeah, that's my. I don't care about you know if you yeah. got stuff in your garage. I'm talking, yeah. you know, I'm talking about what you see and what you don't see, and the capacity right. you have for understanding something like science, right? Uh, right? Meaning knowledge that really tries to figure out what's going on and not just believe the myth you were told to believe because everyone believes it. Right. 
Right. So you're dealing with something that's vastly different. So I, I want to talk about China today, but just one more thing about Japan is this, is that Japan is a place where in religious terms, you have some mixture of Buddhism with what would be called, if it were Australia or Africa, animism in the form of Shinto. That in the, in, in, in 1853, all of that slams into the modern world Mm -hmm. and over the next 15 years the japanese decide collectively and they fight a civil war over it Mm -hmm. but they decide collectively in order to survive we're going to backpedal on being open to the world but that means that there is an animistic society that gets to preserve its own animism in the form of shinto as sort of normative for japanese people which they they do export as an imperial power in the late 19th early 20th century but the, the equivalent in the West would be to say, well, after the Romans leave, <laughs> the English never become Christian. This is mm-hmm. what you have to imagine. The English never become Christian. Augustine of Canterbury never arrives at the end of the sixth century. And therefore, you'd have to imagine to see some sort of parallel in the West. You'd have to imagine a British empire that, it, that worships Woden. Okay, but still gets to be the British Empire and builds railways all over India and Africa and fights two world wars. That now, would be the now equivalent. to claim that they're worshiping Woden. You know, I, I, I know it's like there's a big difference, isn't there, between even their their pagan arising? Uh, they don't have the pantheon quite the same way that you see Western and even Near Eastern religions tending to. We were talking about this again before mm-hmm. uh, evolve. The, the, the history of world religions is this constant stealing of the greater God story for yourself uh, that, you know, all the way up to the Allfather Odin and so forth, who is Hermes, blah, blah. They don't have it in Shinto quite the same way. I was led to believe it's more like your your local family stuff, your parents yeah, and so grandparents. The, 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 the issue there with Shinto is that, yes, it is familial. I would say all paganism does really well at being familial, but... The thing that they don't tell you about Shinto, and I think this is a this is a translation problem. Ah, I see, yeah. And it, and it ha- is that that familial structure just runs all the way up. So the legitimacy of the emperor of Japan is derived from his descent from Amaterasu, the sun goddess. Yeah, and this is still so, officially the religion of the state. Yeah, it is familial, but the family runs all the way up. Yeah, yeah. No, but the, the emperor so, and the emperor is still holding this title. Yeah. 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 And so the, the issue there is that I don't think Germanic paganism, whether it's in England or Scandinavia or what's now Germany, actually functions differently. I would say what is unusual is something like the Roman Empire, where you have paganism, but because it's derived from the Roman Republic originally, the the relationship between the emperor and divine sanction is not necessarily there the way it is with most pagan societies, whether you're talking about the mandate of heaven in China or descent from the sun goddess in Japan, or the way that the king is divinely appointed in Germanic societies that are pre-Christian. So I don't, I don't think England is actually, I don't think Anglo-Saxon England before Christianity is actually all that different from Japan. No, no. I mean, much weaker. Right. Historically, I mean, they, they never really rose to the same kind of promise as Japan did, I don't think. Um, and I'm not I'm an expert in ancient Japan, but the, it seems like the those islands were conquered a whole lot and then eventually became a power yeah. out of that. So I would say here's here's the big difference is that Japan 
in the case of Japan, anything that is pre-Yamato, right, which is the name for, like in the same sense that the, the major ethnicity in modern China is Han, mm. the major ethnicity in modern Japan is Yamato. Okay. However, the nature of that group of people and when they got there and where they came from is actually quite similar to Anglo-Saxon invasion in that pre-Anglo-Saxon England is not England, right. it's Britain, right. and it is not genetically Germanic at all. In the same way, you have groups that genetically, the only remnant of them being the Ainu who are in Hokkaido, the, the northernmost island, you have groups that genetically really are Siberian hmm. inhabiting Japan before a group called the Yamato or Yaoyui come from what is probably Korea. Yeah, it's the Normans. Yeah, and oh. they invade. The issue is that Anglo-Saxon England gets interrupted by Christianity in its religious development mm -hmm. in a way that Yamato Japan does not get interrupted by Buddhism because Buddhism does not force the kinds of choices. Yeah, yeah. So so for our listeners, and I think you're going to have to, maybe to let our time go deeper, to, you're making the case that Christianity is unique amongst world religions. And I kind of alluded to it earlier. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to give it all credit for writing, but it, it definitely did influence the direction of alphabetic writing. Um, yeah. Played a part in that. So th rather than like chase that rabbit, what I want to shift back to is your first yeah. point of the translation distinction then, whether it's Christianity that's the cause or just a correlation – yeah. There is a definite translation distinction between West and East, and it is pictographic versus alphabetic. And it's almost like they're watching paper TV for thousands of years, and we're reading books for at least 600. And yeah. in that, like, it, I, I, I'm going to be the last for us to describe how divergent that is. Yeah, it's, 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 complete, it's completely divergent. It also is something that, and, and these are kind of big picture things which are fine to set up for the next couple episodes. It also is something that you can recognize if you have an alphabet, potentially anything can be put in that alphabet, right? Why, why, are, why, why is everything from English to Indonesian in the Latin alphabet? Hmm. It's because you this can. is an alphabet that with some allowances can actually get, get communication done almost anywhere. Right. Okay. You could, we've even put Chinese and Japanese into that same alphabet. The, the issue there is, is also something that as a historical dynamic, you can observe is that what almost uniquely in world history occurs with certain kinds of Europeans, not all Europeans, but certain movements in European history is that they want to find out what is elsewhere almost seemingly for its own sake. Those kinds of people movements are not something that you're going to get in the case of Chinese history, where China is much more like Egypt in its self-conception because it thinks of itself as the center of the world. Right. So as long as it's at peace with itself and it's yes. kind of borders, it's kind yes. of cool. Right. So even where you have completely sufficient technology to explore the world, and the Chinese really do, in the Middle Ages, they send, and I don't think this is coincidental, under the charge of a Chinese Muslim, part of the Hui ethnic group. And I, I don't think it's coincidental because I think Muslims, Muslims resemble Christians 
in terms of world civilizations more than they resemble Chinese or Japanese civilization because they're necessarily going to look elsewhere to find other people who might need to believe in the one God, right? Different God, but... They're the same monotheistic nest egg. Yep, yep, yep. The Chinese are able to, if not necessarily, depends on what you believe, circumnavigate the world in the 15th century, but they're able to have enormous voyages and then just to say, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, whereas once that gets opened up to a Christian civilization in the case of the 15th century with the Portuguese, first of all, and then the Spaniards and then everyone else, the Christians are not able to close that door to themselves. They have to go somewhere. The Chinese are able to do that. And the Japanese are even able to say, we don't need to talk to anybody else. Right. Yeah, Isolationists. Yeah. How dare they? They're able to actually do that. Whereas, I mean, it's not like Great Britain is not a series of islands, and they're never able to just shut themselves off. Hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So, so with the the media ecology of the translation issue being fascinating to me, uh, the idea of pictures versus linear storytelling. Um, not that the pictures wouldn't be uh, still telling the story, but there is this thing that you experience, say, when you read the Gospel of John, and you find this kind of little Eastern thinking, a little more circular thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. All that is what we, we what we're talking about. And then now we want to divert that into uh, the CCM a little bit, right? Like. The great mythos of the beast across the sea, wearing red and ablazoned with stars and horns, and and all the things we're supposed oh, to believe okay. about it. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm I'm not going to raise my hand and say I'm a big fan either. But you know who who is it? How would I even know? Cui bono? I mean, it got yeah. to me somehow. Right. Someone paid, and maybe that's what they just want me to think. I don't know. Right. Okay. So one of the things that you'll notice in discussions of China, especially China now. Although next episode I'm going to talk about how I think pretty much all of this already was played out with Japan just in the 70s and 80s. (laughs) But the thing that you'll notice is that the way that people talk about China, if they're talking about China at all in terms of, you know, how how are we supposed to relate to China, blah, 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 is that they'll talk about China as a threat. And part of the difficulty here is that not only have you seen, and I, it's not that I think the Chinese are like, just love everybody. but part of, part of the issue here is that we have seen this before. This is something that happens with practically every country as one country gears up to fight a war that its elites see coming with that country. So they're doing with China right now what was done, just to give you an example that is a little more accessible because it would be in English, you can go back and find discussions of how evil and decadent the Spaniards are in newspapers that are going to be freely available to you on the internet, American newspapers from the 1880s. You can go find us. There and was no t- war in the 1880s, man. What are you talking about? Right. There wasn't because we there was were a civil gearing. war and there was a revolutionary war. And then there because was like, when, when you're running a democracy, you kind of need a media of some kind over a certain number, you know, once you move beyond a city state, you need a media of some kind. It is a really sad and, history. I just want, as I made fun yeah, of it. Yeah, it is. It's a really and, sad history. And the history. thing is, because what you have to get is you have to get kind of a basic, you know, some guy living in the middle of Ohio in 1889 to even know where Cuba is, let alone <laughs> care about it. You know what I mean? You have yeah. to, you have to, so you can follow the trail 
of how they want you to think about this. And you stuff. want to talk about the blood of the Patriots, by the way. I mean, if, if you're into that movement at all, you want to talk about the blood of the Patriots. I am I am not ever going to get on board as being, uh, say, anti-fascist in the in the in the popular sense of the term these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but when they get upset about the tyranny of certain governments that I pledge allegiance to, it's yeah. hard to to call them wrong. Uh, the trail of blood left behind that they're rioting over yeah. uh, out in Portland, uh, which includes the the DNC. They don't like that DNC anymore. There's some history there that is it's sad. You know, right. uh, yeah. honest, good willing populace, America, whatever we were, willing to trust our elites and continually thrown to blood for for games. You know, right. so eight, the Spanish American War. Being that, and it, it hurt, hurt Roosevelt too, if I, if I recall. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, and so they, you know, in that case, they had to get Americans to know and care about Cuba and the Philippines, which probably a lot of Americans couldn't identify, like which set of islands those are to this day, right? right? Despite how important America has been to Filipino history, so what you you can see that dynamic happening, and it was already happening with Steve Bannon before coronavirus was something that our media was covering. So back to late January, early February of 2020. And, you know, Bannon is already kind of doing the China Hawk thing. I think this is just as a phenomenon interesting to me because it means that there is a policy consensus that existed among the elites that broke down. Because since the 1970s, we have our elites Democrats and Republicans have generally agreed not to go hard on China. And we have, in fact, been very soft on China in terms of letting it do things like join the World Trade Organization in the very that, early 2000s. That was, that was a bad deal. It was a bad deal. That was, a, that was obviously a bad deal and depended on things that just if you think about language barriers, like how many of our elites know Mandarin fluently how can I trust these people not to be lying to yeah, us? No, they never watched Star Trek Six, man. They missed it. <laughs> I know, and and so did I. But even I know better than that, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. well, the, so... the best line in it, you'll appreciate the best line in it is that you won't understand until you've read it in the original Klingon. Speaking there you of go. Shakespeare, okay, yeah. speaking of I'm, Shakespeare, right? Yeah, yeah. Big agree. Big, big agree. agree. It's all it's all about uh, language barrier and betrayal. I mean, it's cheesy, there you, you know, go. '90s Star Trek that my parents loved, sure. and so I guess I did too. <laughs> So I, I would say that, um, but you can kind of see them gearing up for, quote, another Cold War. And there was, there's even, I don't, I don't really think this breaks down clearly on party lines because. I mean, isn't there the whole thing a, right now about how the DNC wants China and they're going to sell us out? I mean, someone's yelling that somewhere. Yeah, people are saying that. However, it really would not be in the interest of, for instance, the United States Navy and any contractor connected to the Navy to not have some sort of ongoing low-level confrontation with China hmm. because it really gives the Navy much more of a reason, the U.S. Navy, much more of a reason to exist and upgrade, you know, weaponry and ships and stuff like that. If we have some sort of ongoing conflict, I mean, very low level, right? Not necessarily a shooting war, in the South China Sea. Yeah, but literally an industrial military complex. I mean, that's yeah, the definition yeah. of it, I think. Right. And that's such an enormous part of the economy of even just the Washington, D.C. area. And then that's scattered throughout districts by virtue of kind of how, how pork works in Washington. 
it's really in nobody's interest for the military industrial complex to get significantly smaller. Nobody's economic interest. Right, right. And so so you don't see that uh, the Biden mask mandate guaranteed a women and all this stuff as mm-hmm. also being along with China buying all our land and gradually subjugating us to debt through some sort of backwood takeover of the DNC. And so that's where the tinfoil hat really does get okay, a bit yeah. much in my mind, yeah, too. I, I think I think the focus there on the DNC is naive because yeah, yeah. if you if you want to look at how Chinese influence functions in Western politics, you would look at and I, I, we talked about this a little bit before the case of Fang Fang um, or Christine Fang, as she was called in the U.S. And her her role as just kind of a, a, a honeypot in espionage terms, her role was to secure Chinese investment in specific American sectors and often kind of sad Rust Belt places in order just to get capacity for the Chinese economy. Because the shift that's going on here and the reason that I don't think we're going to have, quote, a Cold War is because structurally, the Chinese relationship to the United States specifically and to the West generally is not at all what the Soviet Union was doing. (laughs) The Soviet Union resembled China in that in 1917, the Soviet Union was economically similar to China in the late 1970s overwhelmingly impoverished, overwhelmingly agrarian economy. Stalin industrialized the Soviet Union in a completely different way. He tried to create a self-sufficient economy. And right. he right. had he had resources just in land mass. He was a communist geo- who believed in communism. Yeah. As, as yeah. opposed to it, a communist leader used it as a shield for his yes. capitalism. Yes. If you want something, uh, if you want a country that could actually have a legit cold war with us, you would look at North Korea, not right. China. Right. Okay. Right. China chose a different path. China chose a path much more like the United States chose in the 19th century. That is, you're an enormous domestic market, so you can work off that. You, you have some amount of resources, although China lacks the resource diversity that the United States has just by virtue of geography. And I, this is why like basic geography matters a lot. Hmm. Like knowing that China can raise food, but, but insufficient oil hmm. and insufficient rare earths is important. It explains a lot of the Middle East, actually. It does. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, it totally explains the Middle East, you know, so because they have like almost nothing going on geographically in their favor. China chose a path much more like the United States, where, especially because of the world wars, we really benefited from the fact that we could make things that other people wanted to buy. Mm -hmm. And our ingenuity was much more homegrown than China's, but it wasn't significantly different. And we, we also benefited from the fact that copyrights and patents just didn't work with the same kind of stringency in the 19th century that they do today. So there's a way Although in which they, we... they don't quite today the same way. Well, they, do, they, from don't, China. <laughs> they don't in China. But when we say, oh, the Chinese did this and the Chinese did that. How do you think the British invented textile mills? Yeah. And then we just coincidentally. Yeah, I'm going to tangent on copyright law and just kind of kind of. Yeah, go ahead. Challenge the, the supposition. Uh, an unenforceable law is not a law writ into the cosmos or nature. So the idea that you have done this copyable, infinitely (sighs) copyable thing, 
that somehow is going to now retain its value right. is, is nonsense. No. And I say that as yeah. a writer, you know, and I right. own it. Like you should keep writing the rest of your life and not write one book. What are you, what are you, what are you thinking? And you want no skin in the game? And that's a different topic too, but yeah. you know, there's a whole book about that if you want to get into right. it. Yeah. Back to China. So, right. So China's, China's rise is a little bit more like the United States's rise after the civil war. We're speaking just economically than I think anyone would care to admit. So the question you have to ask yourself is, will it be in the interest of China to fight with us any more than it was in the interest of the United States, say, to fight with Britain, the which only, became the only country yeah. that has an interest in a land fight with us of any kind uh, would be Mexico. And we're not watching nearly <laughs> close enough. I got to say, <laughs> I mean, they got you want to talk about a military that ain't afraid. OK, Golly. Uh, yeah. Guerrilla style. Talk about Taliban making peace. Yeah, if you want to talk about, <laughs> yes, okay, if you want to talk about, okay, cartels would fight with us, sure. The idea that the Mexican military well, is going to fight with us. I, okay, I, I, You got to understand layers. I mean, that that's just the layer. That's what they want you to see. Who's really in charge? The guy who gets elected? I, Are you kidding have, me? Do we really think Biden's running any? I mean, it's the I same have, game. I have no idea. I have no idea. I can even read Spanish, and I feel like Mexico is much more comprehensible than China, and I feel no comfort saying anything about what's actually going on in Mexico. Interesting. So I could say this, I could say there's a death cult worshiped by assassins that day of the totally. dead is kind of all about. Uh, I can say totally. the drug cartels yes. are, are vicious yes. um, and fearless. I can say that a strong man who protects his people is loved by his people. And uh, that's what I can say about Mexico. Okay. I, I could say that I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for but, that reason, I'm, I'm a little more, Oh, I, I'll say it this way. I'm far more yeah. aware of that culture and the potential xenophobia of that culture uh, should oh, yeah. situations arise. Not for me, but for the people here, right? For the whole city. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, also then seeing it as something to learn more about and care more about in daily life than, say, a Cold War I'm being told I have to worry about. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, totally. Because that's an example where... Mexico's interrelationship with the United States is simply on a human level much deeper. Absolutely. In the sense that there are enough Mexicans in Chicago that Mexican presidential candidates campaign in Chicago, right? That's much more important yeah. to your daily life or even or mine even than China. Anybody that lives in an American city, you know, and especially if you're a, a Rust Belt American city. Yeah, totally. Uh, in mine. Yeah. Uh, the black population is decreasing because they still get abortions and the uh, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina population, uh, they are projected to replace them, uh, whereas the right. so-called white population uh, is going to be remaining stable. And I'm, that doesn't bother me per se. It's sad, again, that the, the black population is declining as it is. But uh, that influx is a, is real. 30 year reality. And, and frankly, I'm kind of, I I'm glad there's a lot of familial yep. love in that culture, uh, understanding of neighborhood care and things like that. And, <laughs> uh, overlapping familial pagan religions as well. While, while we talk about it, throwing back to our, our Shinto stuff. But so I guess I would say that the, the ways in which China matters to the United States are that they have a symbiotic relationship. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily good for us. It's certainly not good for our manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so long-term, it's really not good at all for the United States because it makes the United States 
incredibly economically dependent and financially dependent, right? Difference between sort of the flow of goods and services versus the flow of money. We are dependent in both senses on China. Mm -hmm. And we've made ourselves that way yeah. with some intention. Yeah. yeah. And financially, we're still very much dependent on Japan too, because between Chinese and Japanese investors, both uh, uh, both public and private, we are tremendously dependent on their desire to own US dollars. Economically, we're also dependent. So what I'm saying is that relationship between China and the United States will be in the future very similar, depending on certain factors within China I'd like to talk about before we, before we go today, will be much like the Japanese-American relationship, which is they don't necessarily want to like take over the United States in some sort of formal political sense. But they do desire certain things that the United States offers, I think, above all, especially for wealthy private Chinese investors, legal stability. Hmm. Okay. And this is kind of an interesting caveat. Yeah, so for their the elite future. can get out from under the CCM, basically. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think that this is something that we don't think about when, and, and, and it's being masked by things like, oh, well, the DNC wants this or that. Okay, sure. But Democrats control the state of California. The state of California has always been a wonderful real estate investment for pretty much everybody. This goes back to the casino. There are people who want the casino to stay open just because we recognize that it like degrades humanity, especially if you have to live inside it. Right. That doesn't mean that that's, that's bad for everybody. And there are people who don't want, for instance, Seattle to be burned down. They don't want Los Angeles to just become an open air homeless encampment. And they do want things that places like the United States and a place that is much more advanced in this regard in, it, in, the, in the depth of its interrelationship with China, Australia. Hmm. They don't want those places with their Anglo-Saxon legal regimes, which are so protective of property, right? Going all, going all the way back to Anglo-Saxons, right? Mm. Even the pagan ones, an Englishman's home is his castle. Yeah. Okay? yeah. That's important. And that's important for Chinese investors too, because it means that they want a regime and maybe they even want to influence Eric Swalwell <laughs> to have a regime where private property rights are respected because that is why they want to be here. They don't necessarily want to be here because they want to like, take over America. They want to be here because America is a great place to invest in. Hmm. It, and, and if you look at, especially post-World War, especially post-World War II Europe, you will see Americans doing all the same stuff. In a much more, in the case of NATO, a much more militarily invasive and protective way. So that, that you know, right. that's kind of up in the air, but the dynamic is really the same. You have a country with a lot of money to spend looking somewhat for somewhere to invest it, and they're going to find things to invest in. Right. And they want to buy some of the most developed and nicest or yeah. most available nicest. Yes. Place. And that's not necessarily going to be good for the natives nope. any more than Never McDonald's is. in everywhere in Britain is good for the physical health of the British population. But it doesn't mean that McDonald's isn't going to come there. Right. Hmm. That makes me want to ask a question that I'm just not prepared to ask. So I don't know how to formulate it, but you know, stopping people from coming to your place is mm -hmm. a novel thought to the American. Very novel. 
Right. It, I mean, it is unless you, you know, you're trying to, you're coming into Chicago from two hours away and you need a quarantine for 14 days. This, I, I, I don't believe anything anyone says about immigration because everyone was able to shut down or requiring shutting down anything they want to for the sake of COVID. So I think that stopping people from coming in is completely dependent on the will of the people who are ruling a place. I don't think it has anything to do, again, kind of like we said for the year end episode, I don't think it has anything to do with thinking of human movement as sort of just like the weather, like it just happens. But there is like, okay, so I don't know if this is really important or or even tertiary. Human movement though, mm -hmm. is what has been dramatically slowed down in the last well, for, uh, yeah, in the last couple of months, COVID period. But then yeah. um, it seems to be at least, uh, let me ask you this way. A little bird uh, recently was not in Illinois. And mm -hmm. I live in Illinois with this little bird and uh, experienced life somewhere else where everyone was in a room without masks at a big wedding. It was this big thing that went on. Mm -hmm. And um, that's normal in that part of the world. And yeah. uh, that's not normal in this part of the world, in this part of the world, kind of look over your shoulder while you're talking about masks because uh, mm -hmm. everyone is you know, carry, worried about the, the asymptomatic spread and whatnot. Yep. And so uh, um, that that fragmenting again um, continues to be, uh, I don't know, the thing that makes me not believe any of what I hear about China and increasingly want to just dismiss yeah. the entire thing yep. as a big faraway myth, even though certainly I don't believe that there's, I, I believe there is a China, there is a country, there is a land filled with lots of diverse people with huge, uh, nuanced realities about them. Why is that a topic? Even in a history of power, I mean, it is because we're going to enter a cold war with them as you're kind of pointing out, but then, okay. So if I'm in a cold war against a boogeyman, why would I spend any time thinking about the boogeyman? He's a boogeyman. Right. I got to think about what does a Cold War mean for me and mine and the people right. who look to me for providence, right? which is yeah, a far more and, important thing. Right. And I think that that, is, that plays into something that a lot of listeners ask. I mean, we know because they, they write in asking this, which is but nice. I, I, think, I, think, I think a lot of people probably, why pay attention to this stuff? Why care? And I would say just off the bat, if you have what you need to carry on your daily life in a way that's responsible and helpful to the people around you, you don't need to listen. That's totally fine. The reason to pay attention to stuff like this is because you're trying to be more helpful and better informed and have a better sense of what could happen or what is happening because you understand that the conventional ways that you've been told to think about things aren't, aren't even true in many cases or are only partially true. So if you're fine with just like turning everything off, not listening to anything, not watching anything, that's fine. Go for it. But the reason that we do this is to provide greater wisdom for people who want to understand what is happening. And part of that is looking at things from a new perspective. So I'll give you an example. Whenever India is discussed, India with a population relatively similar to China's and as a nation state of pretty much equal age, late 1940s, as currently constituted, India is a place that you're constantly hearing about how diverse it is, how many different factions there are, parties, blah, 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 blah. Languages. And That's the one I always hear is languages. Languages, yeah, yeah. Dialects, Religions, really. all over the place, right? They, no one tells you that about China. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> right, and part of it is that there is more ethnic homogeneity 
okay? But there isn't exactly linguistic homogeneity and the, you know, depending on estimates, eight to 10% that are not Han of the entire population have enormous linguistic diversity, mm -hmm. enormous historical diversity. And at least two of those ethnic groups, the Mongols in, in inner Mongolia, the Chinese province, right? Outer Mongolia would be the country of Mongolia and the Tibetans were both self-consciously at one time empires. Right. Okay. And separate. So, right. Like clearly so, separate, not wanting to not be separate. Totally separate. Okay. But Mongols and Tibetans historically are connected by the practice of Tibetan Buddhism. Hmm. So this is a situation similar to saying you'd have to imagine Germany rules over a nation state called Germany, but constituting what you think of as France, Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, but it's all called Germany and everyone is officially Lutheran. But you know, because you know something about history, that France and Italy actually practice the same religion, which is ruled from Italy. Yeah. Okay. Right. Th that creates kinds of instability and change and unpredictability that you're not getting a sense of. And then also imagine no one is telling you that the Germans are trying to, now you do hear this about German history, the Germans would be trying to gradually infiltrate tons and tons and tons of Germans every single year into France and Italy so, so that one day there would be no French and no Italians. The reason That's we don't get a sense of this is because we don't realize it's the same model our country is kind of yeah, operating it, under. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but, so, we've, but we've been blinded to it. We've been taught to, to believe it's not possible. It's not um, possible. That, that we're all kind of equivalently the same and so we can just talk and get along as long as the box says do it. And if you go along with that that pattern, now there is no um, there's no threat, there's no diversity. So, so yeah. we can't see see the complexity under our noses, I guess. We're all eating at right. McDonald's and thinking we're all different from, or we're all, right. but yeah, thinking we're different from each other. No, I think we're all the same as each other, but we're not. Right. We're quite different. Yeah, yeah there, is, there's, there are plenty of McDonald's in China. That doesn't mean that there aren't hundreds of thousands of Han being pushed into Mongolia and Tibet and Xinjiang and mainlanders being pushed into Hong Kong. And this is a dynamic that <laughs> predates communist China. So I mean, how is this different from, say, uh, I'm, I'm really going to step in it here, but, you know, well, it is Palestine, it's Israel, Pal Palestine, Israel. Well, yeah. It, OK, I thought <laughs> no, I was I'm really going with the Third it. Reich. You go with Israel, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, oh, I, I didn't mean I, to put that together. Jeez. Well, I, it just it just happened on the audio here. So uh, because what you have is, yes, you have a group that wants more space. The Japanese did this with northeastern China in the early 20th century. The thing is, none of this is actually historically unique. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yeah. make it morally good, but none of it is unique to any group of people ever, really. Okay. And this, these are movements of people that are much more, I think, open about what is happening than saying, you know, immigration is like a moral good or something. Well, I guess like, that's kind of my point is we're, yeah. we're like drunk on stupefaction Whereas it seems that the other national powers, global powers, or ethnic powers that are diverse within these groups yeah. talk a lot more openly about the problems because they just know it's there. And we're like, yeah. what problems? We're all fine. You know, we just yeah, you know, yeah. I feel sick. I, I think they do not, they're not, I think one of the big civilizational differences, and this really has to do with what occurred in the 20th century in North America and Europe with the two world wars where our ideological solution, especially after the Second World War, was everyone's the same. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And part of the the symbol of that is, and this is going to sound stupid, but I think it mattered a lot more to that generation, is the the fact of the United Nations. Yeah, absolutely. All the nations are the same. Everyone is the same. I, I don't think that Chinese and Japanese people in public are required to affirm that about different people groups. And therefore, there is probably, this is not good, but there's greater clarity about if we put Han Chinese and Xinjiang one day it won't be Muslim and the Uyghurs won't exist. And that will be better for the Chinese people and the Chinese state. Yeah. Yeah. For the empire. And, and they can do that openly in a way that if we said, look, you know, uh, Arizona is not as white as it used to be. We need to put more white people in Arizona so that it's more. We're founded on this ideology. You know, we're founded we, on. We the, are we... because it would, I mean, like when people say like, oh, uh, such and such state is going blue. Well, why, why is much more heavily Navajo and Hispanic New Mexico, historically Democrat, and Arizona, which was much more uh, white, historically red? Why is mm. that? Mm. Okay. If I put a lot of people from white people from South Dakota and Arizona, it's going to get more Republican, guaranteed. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we know we, we, if you don't vote for Biden, you're not black. I mean, that that was clear. <laughs> also true. Right. So what what's happening here is the one of the one of the current historical differences is that they are much more ethnically, let's say, self-conscious and open than the West is. Okay. The West is can be ethno-narcissistic, let's say. So you have to say that all the best things that ever happened in American history were due to black women or something, right? You're allowed to say that. You're not really allowed to say that something happened positively because of white people. You're not really allowed. There's a lot of things that you're not allowed to say. So the issue here is that we have in the West something that I don't think communist China actually has which is levels of political correctness similar to, and even really, I think, beyond Stalinist Russia. And the problem with political correctness is not that it is not just that it's absurd, a, you know, a men and a women. It, it, it's not just that. Okay. Which I want to point out that a men and a women is a transphobic formulation. Okay. <laughs> <That's> but, <awesome. laughs> but um, it's uh... not just that it's that, Political correctness, the problem with political correctness, and this was identified in like the Red Army in World War II, where you have commissars ostensibly making decisions that should be made by actual combat commanders. Political correctness does not enable you to say what is true. That so, it. Right. So th- that's a problem. Like if I'm a Republican strategist and I cannot admit to myself that if the population is whiter it will be more Republican reliably, then I'm going to have problems strategizing. Hmm. Okay. Because I can't admit something that like a Democrat can so admit. So that's the catch 22, because then now you've stepped into the noose they have prepared for you. You have, yep. ex- you yep. have acknowledged your racism, you white man. Right. 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 And so that this is where. That's why we say well, shut up. That's why we don't talk about it. Right. Cause, cause yeah, we're because we like, don't want to get yelled at. Exactly. Exactly. And it it also political correctness basically i think the the basic issue with it and here i'm just going to sound like any enlightenment figure is that it shuts off freedom of thought mm-hmm. and i think any ideology including christianity could function this way i mean i'm i'm in the lutheran church missouri synod believe me i understand what political correctness can do right yeah sure it shuts off thought and it makes you unable to think what is true 
Okay. And that's always going to be a problem for groups over the long term because it makes them blind. And if I'm blind to the fact that, you know, it's going to rain really soon because I just don't admit that, the, that rain exists. Well, that's not going to stop rain from coming. It just means that I'm not prepared for it. Right. So the issue here is not, you know, necessarily making Arizona more reliably Republican or something. I'm not real sure I like the Republicans at all. That's not really my problem. My problem is that if you're whatever level of group you're thinking on, whether it's family or church or local government or state government or national government, if there's a level on which we're not able to say honestly, like as a family, we don't have this income, right? So we can't buy this other thing because it's going to end up bankrupting us. Hmm. If I'm no longer allowed to be honest, let's say as an example, as a family about what our income is, let's just say we all decided one day we're going to pretend like we make $50,000 more a year as a family than we did last year. That doesn't, we don't, but we're going to say that we do. Right. That's going to affect my decision-making and it's going to have actual consequences. Right. Did you just say ideas have consequences? I think you do. Yeah, they, you yeah, just, they do. do. Yeah. yeah. Richard Weaver was completely right about that, you know? And so, so the issue here is that when we're talking about long-term thinking, something we brought up with China before, it doesn't mean that there are things that the Chinese are not getting wrong, right? One of our listeners brought up the question of ghost cities, which is the Chinese are building things that no one's actually living in yeah. or doing business in or occupying. And there are parallels to that anytime you get booms, economic booms. Yeah, it um, happened in North that, Dakota recently, in fact. Yeah, it happened in North Dakota recently. It happened in America kind of as the frontier expanded. It happened in Australia in the 19th century. The issue with a boom and a boom town is not whether or not it's like a risk. It's whether or not the risk will be borne out. And if it does flourish for a while, will it someday go away? And in many cases, it does go away. And that, you know, you can find in Arizona, for instance, kind of really interesting places that used to be full and now like just don't even... There's actually a place like that in Pennsylvania, of all places, where oil first was discovered. Hmm. The town just isn't even there anymore. But there are pictures of 15 churches and, you know, a million bars and in, in this place that doesn't even physically exist anymore because it was built of wood. So the issue with it, with long-term thinking is not that the Chinese aren't like susceptible to booms. I think humans are susceptible to short-term thinking trying to get rich quick. The issue with long-term thinking is that I think our elites demonstrate time after time after time that they would rather get a short-term gain and be blind to certain things than think about something that is hard to think about. Right, well, they don't. And that's <laughs> what concerns me as a group about our nation, mm. our states, et cetera, that I don't think, I think like to give you an example of long-term thinking with the Chinese, I think the Chinese party realizes that it is what holds China together at this juncture. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. Regardless of how orthodox communist it is, it's what holds China together. Xi Jinping, when he came to power, realized that the party needed to assert why it had to exist and what its relationship was to the Chinese people. And they have done that. Hmm. They have done that over his tenure. I don't think that's good. I don't agree with Xi Jinping thought. That's the official name. But he looked into the future and realized that there is no future for a group 
without something bigger than merely material interest. Mm -hmm. One of the difficulties that I think America has, in addition to political correctness, is that a lot of what is holding us together are merely material interests, which in the case of a neighborhood could work if the neighborhood is threatened by, let's say, just immediate physical violence. It doesn't work, I think, for building something that's going to exist like when your kids are as old as you are now. Hey, you're not going to invest. Yeah, you're not going to invest. I think Which people need back something to, I bigger say, than Especially yeah. if, if you're you're doped up on one of a million different things, just sitting there trying to wear off the trauma of a day of modern life. Right, and you know yeah. that your body was not meant to do. Right, basically. Right. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. So China's not monolithic is one of the most important things no. to come out of this, right? And not I interviewed a guy who has an anonymous name um, uh, or a, a pen name, and he's mm -hmm. reached out to me again recently, but it's been a little bit. It was back before Christmas. But he's a, a dissenting Chinese expatriate living in Germany, and his big thing that he wanted to tell me, he wanted to be interviewed just to tell me this, is that China is a myth. That the name China, the idea of China, everything about it, holding everyone together, even the Han, is, is – yeah. and you've, you've exposed this, but it's the same thing as the Germany taking over the, the peninsula of Europe. And then, yeah, you know, right. hundreds of years later or a couple thousand years later saying, well, this is – you know, nobody else was here. Well, yeah, there was a lot of Germany. other people yeah, that were right. there. And you right. can't even say when they say they're a 5,000-year-old society, the original society was not called China. This is a later development, which is fine. You got roots. Cool. Yeah. But the myth – is myth and then there mm -hmm. is the reality and i guess that's what this show for me is always about is recognizing that we're all talking stories and there's a lot of half true stories floating around yeah. out there and uh and so to to call them myths um narratives metas whatever uh, to try to uh i don't want to say fabricate understand one that holds water uh, mm -hmm. and will allow me to walk uh, as yeah. opposed to what seems to be, again, uh, the, the grand white noise just wants me to fear at this point, just wants yeah. me to tremble in anxiety and hold out my hand asking for more from, from big, big, can't say brother, can't say sister, big androgyner. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, big, big zier. Um, <laughs> uh, I would, I, I think that, and I, and I think that part of the, part of the problem here is that China is going to face something if it isn't already similar to what Egypt faced when Islam came. That is, it encountered an ideology that was much more powerful, both militarily and also intellectually, than the, at that time, predominant Christianity. But that Christianity also has a self-conscious connection to Egyptian antiquity. Right. Right? The Copts are much they're very self-conscious about being ethnically Egyptian yeah, and not, yeah, yeah. not Arab alone. And so the problem there is that, because I think Egypt is your best analogy to China's way of thinking about itself. It's kind of lying about how many different kinds of people have been in charge over time, yeah. where they came from, what yeah. they looked like. Yeah, and that's, that. that's the point I was making before, the myth of it all. Yeah, totally. There's no solidarity through it is that part of the problem with mythology and the reason that, that we talk about history is because history, people can lie about it. People can shade what happened. People can unconsciously omit things. When you're listening to me, you're listening to a certain person with certain life experiences, but I'm not making things up. Hmm. And the problem with mythology is that it makes up stories which don't have to be linked to to anything that actually happened. Yeah, yeah. And that leaves you blind. That's political correctness is just another way of saying this. Mm -hmm. 
And what that does is it leaves you with a with an idea that will not be borne out. I mean, in our passages, insert, it's a it's therefore a holiness religion based on what you just said. It's a holiness religion based on a kind of a magic criteria of linguistics. Yeah. And if you speak in a certain way, the society will be clean. Um, and so continue on that, though. But to, to... And, so, and so and so what that's going to give you is a sense that like, well, if we just have this in place, things will work out because according to my mythology, this is how it always worked. And the problem is mythology doesn't actually tell you how it worked in the past. And it doesn't prepare you for what's going to ensure survival in the future, because it tells you, for instance, like in the case of China, China is the Middle Kingdom. It's always been the center of the world. China has a self-conception very much like ancient Greeks. There's us and then everyone else is a barbarian. The Japanese repristinated that in Japan. The problem there is that it, it doesn't tell you, for instance, how or why China is currently having massively increasing rates of heart disease and obesity. Because the problem is heart disease and obesity might be linked to having a modern economy, but they're not linked historically to being Chinese. Hmm. So it's a factor that I don't even have capacity to think about if I'm thinking in terms of, let's say, Chinese exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. If I, well, if for I the same think, reason Americans aren't thinking about it either. We think exactly we're right. Yeah. So if America is if America is telling itself, well, we have a unique ideology that everybody wants, everybody wants to be free it doesn't enable us to learn lessons that eventually we learned, which was if you want to win in a counterinsurgency war in a foreign country, this is how you do it. You can't do it by being nice or by obeying quote, liberal democratic norms. You know, American exceptionalism didn't tell us that because it told us that we were unlike any other society that's ever existed. It didn't explain to us why Afghanistan and Iraq or even Vietnam before that happened the way they happened. So the problem here for China going forward is that I think a narrative about their own uniqueness and the fact that they are just, I mean, in historical terms, give you an example, they've been fighting the Uyghurs in, you know, kind of the Eastern, you know, Central Eurasian area for a very long time, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> a millennium or more. Okay. That ethnic group faced off against the Han specifically, actually. Mm. I mean, I, I do believe this actually happened. And there were times when the Uyghurs were just clobbering the Han, just, just destroying them, okay? Currently, the Han, because a lot of things happened that didn't happen to the Uyghurs, are completely destroying the Uyghurs. And the Han will probably just win and could potentially exterminate the Uyghurs. It could end up with a situation similar to there are certain ethnic groups that used to dominate the Near East, and now they basically just exist as exile communities in Canada and the U.S. Okay, maybe that'll happen with the Uyghurs. I don't know. There will there'll only be Uyghurs in like Iowa or something. Right, the Medes. Could, who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that could happen. That doesn't mean that the Chinese are going to exist as an incredible power for a thousand years. <laughs> Okay, Wait, but they're going to find the sword in the lake. Don't you understand? And then they will reign from Charlemagne's throne because we've given up our ghost. Yes. Yes. So the I mean, that's what I was afraid of. That's, that's, yeah. that's honestly I know, the fear. I know. Because and I think that that is due to and I'm not saying I even know Chinese Mandarin. Let's be specific. There's no such thing as Chinese. That's true. I'm saying that just because you don't understand someone else or some other group 
doesn't mean that those people are immune from historical circumstances hmm. or the things that occur to groups or individuals that are unforeseen and unpredictable, or that just because they're not susceptible to the kind of political correctness that you are, right? So like, you don't like, <laughs> uh, I see this because if you watch like anime set in Europe, everybody's white if it's the middle ages, right? right. But if you watch a Disney movie using a European folktale, there's like random black people, right? Um, Sorry. Right. Yeah, well, because okay. so, so, it's important. Yeah, sure. It's important. Diversity is our strength. Just well, I mean, because, I, just I because I don't, they're I don't not entirely disagree with that either. So I just on for the sake of it, like exposure yeah. to unique things. I mean, you know, that that's, that's sure. valuable. But your sure. point is like we have no problem trotting on some people's cultural history. We'll just trash it for the sake of political correctness because these are ethnic stories. These are traditions, right? Right. right. We'll just trash right. it. And then yeah. if you say that's your ethnic tradition, you're racist for wanting Correct. to have your ethnic tradition be your ethnic tradition, ethnic tradition. That um, is that is true. What I'm also saying is that just because the Chinese or Japanese are not susceptible to those forms of, let's say, political correctness, doesn't mean that they're going to endure as nations forever. Right, right, because, absolutely. Because the issue here is that political correctness is a certain sort of paralysis of thought or paralysis of feeling that leaves you unable to think or feel other things that are true. And every human being and every human group are susceptible to paralysis of thought or paralysis of feeling that leaves them unable to see truth or to perceive certain things and therefore blindsides them. And I think an example of this is China is being blindsided by eating like modern people. Yeah, yeah. They've gone within you know, both of our lifetimes from being a third world country, that means therefore largely eating a traditional diet to being a country that is consuming processed foods and especially a lot more meat oh, than they have ever eaten. Historically. Oh, and so their bodies aren't ready for it. Their bodies are not ready for it. Hmm. And so, you know, that that's a that's a well, level processed of meat, yeah. just just processed meat and, and processed meat, real right. meat, red meat versus, say, a lot of processed chicken. I mean, you can call that meat if you want. Yeah, it's not really. Right, <laughs> it's animal product, I suppose. Yeah. So it depending on what they're actually getting there. If they're modeling on the standard American diet and its ability to canify and boxify, yeah, yeah. man, they're 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 poisoning people. Wow, I didn't think about that. They are, wow. and, you're, and you're moving you're moving radically within, like, let's say, the past forty years from, you know, I mean, East Asian populations can consume traditionally far more carbohydrates than than say like european populations mm -hmm. probably because of the rice the rice yeah the rice their relationship they're able to do that genetically and not suffer right so but i i think that that is that is a factor that being like a medicinal or biological factor is not something necessarily that we're talking about but i think it's an actual problem for the chinese state in the same sense that i think that like incredibly low fertility rates are a problem for the Japanese state. So you're so, what you're doing is you're injecting yeah. certain catalysts of change that interest, is interesting to me because you almost could, if the civilization were being run by somebody, which is not, you could have looked at the American experiment and as a modern experiment and seen what it did to the population. Yeah. But you'd have to care about the population, which I'm not sure anybody right. who's making any decisions really does. But you could have seen – it's not just, say, the modern world, but that the modern world brings with it certain requirements 
that as a body, physically, you human are unable to detach from, like a commute, that these things compound. And yeah, the number right. of these shifts in your bodily life that the modern world asks you to take on if you just jump out of the country into the city is, uh, you know, I'd say it's it's more than just squared, right? We're looking right. we're looking at a couple right, exactly. a couple ways up the chart of the scale. So right. So to see that that's, I mean, it isn't good news. It's just, oh, you mean all the same problems in the world are there too? Well, that's interesting. We're all kind of spinning on this rock in a similarly bad direction. Hmm. I wonder. I <laughs> right. Mean, is, is, and, and right. Spin, exactly. by the way, in, in particle physics doesn't mean spin, I learned yesterday, which is interesting. But anyway, <laughs> you should imagine that it means spin because that helps somehow. Right. Right. So I, I think that as we talk about Japan next episode and then also some other things, um, other other countries, maybe a little civilizationally closer to our own in the episodes after that, barring, you know, well, what's going to happen Whatever. tomorrow, man? Or is it tomorrow? I have, I have no. I have absolutely no idea. That's Do we have why any more information to add to that from last time? I mean, it's just tomorrow, right? That the actual today's Georgia and tomorrow's. Tomorrow Sorry. is counting both in Georgia, but also recognition of the certification of electoral college votes right. in the house. Right, yeah. right, and yeah. so Georgia's just won't be there by that point, or what? Georgia's isn't this well no that's Georgia Georgia's stuff has to do with the Senate runoffs that's Georgia's right. electoral college votes are in got it so this is just about then whether that senator will not be able to be present for any of this event then tomorrow right guess not yeah interesting guess not so I mean which you know from a sort of a Trump perspective is actually good because neither of those people is pledged to you know challenge the certification of sure, all of those votes sure right sure so so yeah, I mean, barring something completely unforeseen, we're looking at other things, I think, because it sheds light not only on how much different human societies with vastly different histories actually share by virtue of being human societies that have certain you know, biological reactions to processed foods or something, but also I think it sheds light on what is going on in the midst of most of our listeners' lives, which are realities that may not be exactly what you're being told because... For instance, China, it's really not in China's interest. That doesn't mean it could never happen, but it really is not in China's interest to fight even a cold, let alone a hot war with the United States, because the United States is basically just like a big market for China. Right. It's a market for, and, and, it's, and it's a zone for Chinese investment, which in a lot of cases really is not helpful to Americans. I mean, there are, it's gone on long enough that there are documentaries you can find about you know, what happens when the Chinese begin to run this factory in a, you know, Midwestern city of 25,000, they don't treat workers the way that those workers think human beings should be treated, but the Chinese don't treat their own factory workers the way that we think human beings should be treated. So, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, but well, this, you're awful this proud. Is, you're awful proud if you stand up to your boss, you know, yeah, there's, there's a right. cultural difference yeah. there. Yeah. Big one. Yeah. There's a big cultural difference. And so, a lot of this has gone on long enough that you don't have to dig very far. There's stuff in English that you can find figuring this stuff out. But I do think that like, just to kind of, as, as we begin to wrap up, there was an article that Reuters put out a couple of days ago about, oh, uh, you know, the Chinese are going to hire all the white men who basically get offloaded by corporate America for diversity. Yeah, I saw that somewhere. Okay, you saw that. Yeah. So I'm not real sure like what the point of that article is. I find it a little hard to believe 
in the sense hope for white men if we move to china one place where they want us right well because (laughs) what they're trying to explain is why are the china because here's something that they are objectively doing the chinese they're building cities that look like european cities Hmm. like they're like replicas it's weird like down to like sort of, uh, you know, Lutheran village looking churches. That's funny. I think I'm just thinking about our copyright conversation earlier and, and right? uh, you know, exactly. the way that you get the cheap earbuds. And it's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, the idea that cultural appropriation is an insult is one of the strangest historical phenomena. It really has to be seen yeah. as that. That's a weird thing. You don't want people to, to be like you. Um, and so, they, I mean, I think they're doing that. That's a sign of respect, I would say. They, they're, they, yeah, they, and I, I think it's actually geared toward domestic tourism. Oh, that makes sense too. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I don't think it's about like we're gonna invite you know Dave, who you know is extremely competent, but just happens to be a cisgendered hetero white male, and therefore he can't work at Google anymore. So Dave's gonna go work for you know uh, Weibo and live in this replica of Amsterdam or something. Hmm. I don't. I don't really think that's realistic. And if you wanted to survive as, I mean, plenty of groups have done this over time. If you want to survive as a group, when you have to leave your native country for whatever reasons, you have to do it as a group. You can't do it as a career move just for Dave. Right. 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 So, so that's that gets toward where you mentioned closing up. I, I was thinking more uh, back toward the conversation about the little bird who left the state and came back again and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. the fragmentation that's going on. To remember that the story you're experiencing where you are is made up of largely two things, whatever electronic myth you're listening to or combination Mm -hmm. of them uh, combined with your face-to-face people you're talking to. And if you're in one of those states or places like I am where that's been severely limited and increasingly so, that makes every single place where you can meet and talk to somebody all the more important to never let go go of because uh, if they keep pushing, you're going to end up with no one else to talk to you're gonna be alone and you will go slightly crazy um Mm -hmm. so see your church uh see your men's group uh see your whatever or your barber um don't Mm -hmm. give up on on your local community at all find the people who are not locked down as hard because they're local and they got to stay open and uh talk to them about what's going on because that trust is how you guys are going to pull together in the event of something truly catastrophic whatever that could be uh, right. Is you're going to see each other, you're going to know each other, you're going to be able to rely on each other, or maybe even have each other's cell phone numbers if we have cell towers and electricity after it all gets knocked out by the solar wave that we're about to hit sometime. I don't know tomorrow, probably tomorrow. Why not? Yeah, same time. It'll coincidentally, it'll probably have something to do with cell phone service in Washington D.C. So. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, I'm waiting for some weirdo, weirdo thing to really rock us. But uh, you mean like a you mean like a like a camper van bombing um, a communications building? For instance, um, no, I didn't hear about that though. Was that was that recent? That's Nashville. That was Nashville on Christmas Day. No, I'm thinking something more cosmic, honestly. Um, Okay, and I I don't know what, but it just uh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna go into my dystopic cosmic makeup world now a little bit. (laughs) The language devolution brought about by media ecology, or observed by media ecology in the phenomena of the internet making Neil Postman's work both obsolete and yet even more important than ever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not confident it can go on without in fact, uh, burning everything in ways that we, we can't stop. We can't even see coming. It's, it's the, it's the group of ants accidentally pushing the bomb together, right. In in a herd moment. Yeah. And, 
so I'm a, I'm a Christian, and so I believe Jesus will come back before that kind of moment will happen, or that moment would be the moment he would be coming back if we're really going to, like, actually annihilate the world. But I don't necessarily believe we're actually going to annihilate the world either. I'm, I'm quite confident that it's possible for us to have a nuclear winter that puts us into a no food growing for 10 years, um, difficult to survive, uh, everyone's fighting each other trying to make it through, and come out the other side and have to be three, 5,000 years before Jesus comes back. And, and again, this is just my world. If you're an atheist, sure. you should sure, be sure. expecting at least this. Right? Sure. <laughs> at least this. Sure. It, it's just guaranteed to happen at some point. Um, yeah. So, okay. But the way I see it a little bit, too, is that the Lord that I believe in, he really likes human flourishing, and he just as soon not wipe it all out in like these big momentary things because there's a lot of, um, what do you call it, uh, ancillary damage and results. Yeah. And so sometimes he sends other types of trauma that we really don't like or expect, sometimes miraculous, sometimes not, that uh, make it impossible for our attempt to destroy ourselves to happen. And that's what I'm waiting to happen with cell phone coverage. Honestly, I, I, I cannot see how the internet continues to be what it is today without human civilization going back to the stone ages. And then that would be the very event. I mean, there we are. We're back to the stone ages. How do we do that? Somehow we're on that trajectory. And if we just keep yawning at each other on these machines, letting them be our scrying stone somewhere, that's bound to happen. Um, and I just, I just don't think we can take much more of it as it is. Um, now, maybe this, this does it as a microcosm where it's not yeah. a world thing. And you, you know, you've pushed me in this direction of seeing it as a city phenomena that we're yeah. going to watch our cities burn. Um, whereas you will have sort of Renaissance man style township development taking place at the same time. It doesn't have to be like electricity and water all go away. But I do think that we're on the verge of, of, of that kind of hit. And I'm not going to be surprised if there's one more thing that no one sees coming, an actual black swan, not sure, like COVID, sure, sure. COVID's not a real black swan, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, an yeah. actual black swan that throws physics or chemistry or cell phone coverage at least into unexpected scientific phenomena that we just can't deal with. And it shuts everything down really fast, right? Okay. Um, now that's, again, I, I'm an imaginative guy. I don't think that's like a guaranteed <laughs> thing. I yeah. just won't be surprised if it happens, that's all I'm saying, right? And I can yeah. see its potential from my religious perspective. I'm not a prophet. I can't tell the future. But things like this have happened. And that's that's where I'm at. Yeah? Does that, does that yeah, they, tie up? Yeah, they, they have happened. And I would say that the issue with our civilization is it is very fragile in the sense that even rural areas in our civilization are completely dependent on industrial processes. Correct, yeah. And the problem there... <clears throat> is that if that society is no longer able to keep those industrial processes such as flows of energy, water flows, food chain, uh, you know, um, food distribution, not food chains. <laughs> exactly. Well, it'll become um, that pretty quickly. Food, yeah, right. Food distribution, all of that going. It's not like people in rural America are like growing all their own food. So the issue is that we are dealing with something that is not historically unique in structure. Okay. Things have fallen apart. If you just look way, at the, we're dealing with the famine waiting to happen. You're, you're dealing. I mean, I, I think any civilization is a famine waiting to that's, happen that's because, yeah. it, because it is more or less fragile. The issue is that, um, is that the intensity of its fragility, you know, there's a difference between saying I have a broken arm versus both my arms and both my legs are broken at the same time mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm. or could all break easily right now. Right is that the intensity of our fragility is much greater than a civilization that is not as intensively industrialized 
and technologically permeated and runs all entirely on finance, which means it actually runs on like debt and cash flow. Stories. We're, yeah, stories. We are, we are a lot more fragile than something that's going to fall apart, let's say, 1500 years ago anywhere in the world. Because in that case, people are reverting, like the level that they would have to revert to is much closer to the level they're living at. That's why right? our fall will be so catastrophic, is we can't so, revert. Right. We're beyond so, reversion. Even if you don't want to watch something, go find this lecture on YouTube by a guy named Eric Klein called The Year the World Collapsed. And that's about Bronze Age collapse. I think I think he puts it in 1177 BC. But the issue there, it depends on when you think exactly the Bronze. But but it is it is indubitable that the Eastern Mediterranean just kind of fell apart. And a lot of things happened after that. The issue is when that falls apart, that means that you go from like having writing to not having writing. But it doesn't mean that you go from like, I get my food inside this thing that's like lit and people bring it in magically from the outside to now I have to grow my own food. I got trade somehow. So yeah, so the transition, it's not like ideological collapse or political correctness or any of that is actually historically unique. None of it is. I mean, I, I feel like in basically I say the same thing on every episode. It only looks different to people because they just they're just not thinking about all this stuff the way I spend my time professionally basically thinking about it, but it's all the same stuff. People are not that different the world over. The issue is that some societies are a lot more fragile than others. And so when a heavily industrialized society tied together by myths that have collapsed falls apart, it's a much bigger deal than if like a tribal group has to move 400 miles to the east to survive. Right. They're doing the same thing they were doing 400 miles to the west. Now they're doing it 400 miles to the east. No big deal. Right. So you're talking about a fall that is a lot harder when, when technology and all of that is that much more complex and fragile. Which puts you, I mean, you feel, I do feel like we end every episode this way as we've been uh, way over where we tried to stop. <laughs> it, it can almost sound hopeless. And in one sense, it kind of is. If your hope is an enduring human city that has, you know, golden streets, right. uh, that that's just not going to be the case. But if your hope is to find in in the ordeal of the suffering of the age, uh, the adventure of honestly masculinity, the adventure of what it means yeah. to be a man. If this isn't inspiring you and making you ready to go do something that's Minecraft but not inside the box, I don't know what's going to get you off your butt. And then yeah. Minecraft's cool, and I like playing it. I want to play more of it. But there's something a lot cooler when I realized that the redstone was just setting me up to understand electricity and that the electricity is the actual deal and that the stone and the wood are the actual deal and that this is your opportunity to – Dig back in for yourself and your progeny into that uh, long game mentality as a family, yeah, as, totally. as an individual, wherever you are. And that, you know, don't assume that just because I said I think something big is going to happen. I also, um, I said it won't surprise me. Um, I also fully can foresee 45 years of my particular neighborhood just doing really well as we gradually invest in uh, trades that last and help other people who live here do that. And uh, I don't see any reason why that can't also be the future. (laughs) Frankly, both could exist at the same time. Um, There's there's a lot of different ways it can go. Um, But going back to those those trades that you do with your hands that fulfill and also benefit others – 
there's it's never too late to try to go back to that and it's never too soon to realize that we stopped teaching people how to be entrepreneuring inventive renaissance men and that if we're going to be america as america was once kind of at least imagined itself to be that path must be taken by everybody uh, not just white guys yeah you have to be odysseus you can't be a consumer so you have to be creative and uh, you have to take what you see you need for your family. Uh, you can't wait for somebody to give it to you because that, that time is over. Yeah, no one is coming to help. It, nope. is, it is up to us. Um, Brief History of Power with two white guys. You've listened for an hour and 17 minutes. You don't even know who we are. I am uh, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. I'm pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois. And my friend here is Dr. Adam Koontz. He teaches at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You can find out more about us if you want to, but you're going to have to do the hard work. You listen this long. It was bad enough. We'll catch you all next time.